Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. This is a special episode focused on a new project on government and technology. Last year, National Affairs, the quarterly journal of public policy, now based here at AEI, commissioned a series of essays on different issues raised by big tech companies and the calls to regulate them. Our project is titled Big Tech, Big Government, The Challenges of Regulating Internet Platforms. Its essays will cover issues ranging from market power to cultural and political power and more. This week, we released online the first of those essays focused on tech companies' geopolitical national security power. The essay is titled The New Superpowers, How and Why the Tech Industry is Shaping the International System. And its author, Klon Kitchen, is my guest today. Klon is the Heritage Foundation's first senior fellow for technology, national security, and science policy. And he directs the Heritage Foundation's Center for Technology Policy. He's a truly fascinating thinker on issues of technology and national security. Before joining Heritage, he was Senator Ben Sasse's national security advisor. And he was staff director for the Senate Banking Committee Subcommittee on National Security and International Trade. He also served in the intelligence community for more than a decade and a half, working on counterterrorism, counterproliferation, covert action, and cyber issues. He deployed to multiple combat zones and received many honors, including a special commendation from the commander of Joint Special Operations Command. Klon, I'm so grateful for your contribution to the series of essays, and I'm so glad you could join us today. Welcome. Ah, Thank you. It's my pleasure. Let's start with your essay's provocative title. Who are the new superpowers? Yeah, so the central thesis of the essay is that there has been and continues to be a significant migration of the national security burden into the private sector, particularly within the technology industry. And so what we're positing is that a couple of key technology companies who are pioneering emerging technologies are themselves becoming key stakeholders and influencers of the international system. And states are having to respond to that and identify a new way forward where you have these sometimes competing, sometimes aligned interests in the emerging international system. So you begin by identifying three trends, and the first two are going to be familiar to basically anybody who's aware of modern life. The first is that more companies have global interests and global influence, and more tech companies, that is. And the second is the rise of digital and social media. But the third trend is the one that you're just alluding to now. You describe it as the center of gravity for the development of critical national security technology and methodologies. That center of gravity is moving to these tech companies out of the places where we would normally find them. Could you just describe that? what that means just in practical terms? What is the center of gravity and how is it moving? There's a, a couple of dynamics at play in that, in that third trend. The first dynamic is essentially we're all in the intelligence business now. So in my time in government, one of the things that we called intelligence, because you know I had a blue badge and a security clearance, was the ability to observe, to understand, to predict, and even to shape human behavior and events. You know, we would provide those insights to policymakers, and again, we called that intelligence, and that was just kind of the business that we were in. Now, when we talk about key technology service providers, you know, obviously all the big names that you would think of, they do exactly this, and they do it with, frankly, more data than governments ever have been able to. And they're not only pioneering new ways to collect that information, they're pioneering the ways to kind of wring the utility out of that information and then take action based on it, right? So 
in the essay, I talk about how both Google and Facebook have filed patents where their artificial intelligence systems using historical data can predict where users are going to be in the future and then proactively provide services to them based on that prediction. And they're really, really accurate. And so that first point is that we're all in the Intel business now. And fundamentally, what that means is is that the state has lost its monopoly on intelligence. And after 9-11, it became kind of unavoidably true that the state had lost the monopoly on violence, right? That these smaller and smaller groups were able to take violent action that had consequences for global power. Well, the same is now true on intelligence, that the state no longer has the monopoly on intelligence, that there are private sector entities who now know more about us than perhaps maybe all intelligence communities combined. So that in and of itself is consequential, but it's not only that. When we think about some of the emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, these are what technologists often refer to as general purpose technologies, meaning they are not only advancements in and of themselves, but they are underlying capabilities that are going to lead to further advancements across essentially all of society, right? So AI is going to be having economic, social, political, foreign and national security policy implications virtually in every sector. That type of technology, AI specifically, but then a host of others, is overwhelmingly being developed in the private sector for commercial means. And it's increasingly unlikely that governments are going to be able to unilaterally assert anything close to that type of capability. And so there's a dependency now on the private sector that's just more acute and more consequential than perhaps ever before. And now states are really trying to, one, reconcile themselves to that reality, and then two, figure out a workable way forward in light of it. At the very beginning of the essay, you said, you write, technology is always a key variable in geostrategic change. And reading the essay, I keep recurring to that thought over and over again. I'm trying to understand what's different this time. For example, in what you just described, the private sector has always been in the business of gathering information, obviously with things like banks, but even just over the last century, things like telecommunications companies, phone companies. These things have always been tracked to some extent in the private sector. It's just that companies are now tracking more things, they're tracking more about those things, and they're able to take that information and do more things with it. So what really was the point of change? I mean, you, when you describe it as a shift in the center of gravity, I, I like that because it, it reflects that it's movement. It wasn't creation of something new, but it was a change. But at what point does a change in quantity terms of the data being collected and who's collecting it, at what point did it become a change in quality in terms of the issues that you focus on? Is it possible to point to particular moments in history that were particularly important, or was it just imperceptible change little by little that we now find ourselves in a different position? Yeah. So I think it's two trends of convergence that have led to that. One that's been incremental and just the way of kind of the evolution of the state and of technology more generally. But then I do think that I could point to at least one moment in time where things seem to have greatly increased in speed and consequence. So in terms of the the incremental change, as you say, technology has always been a feature in national security issues and things like that. But also in your description of the question, you, you kind of answer the question in terms of like, we have now reached a new stage of both type and quantity of data that is even created but then also 
the scale and speed at which that data and information can be collected and then interrogated and then leveraged, we are drowning in data. And it has been the private sector that has both given rise to that, that just phenomena in general, but then because of the enormous and very good economic opportunities that that deluge of data creates, they have also pioneered the methodologies and the capacities to leverage all that and, and, and do cool things with it. So that's been just kind of a natural evolution. Part and parcel to that, when I was on the Hill, my boss was also on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and we would routinely receive briefings where we were being told by defense and national security leaders that what is called the U.S. overmatch capability, by overmatch, they simply mean our relative military superiority over our peer competitors, that our overmatch capability was eroding, meaning the space between our military and, say, China's military was getting smaller, and that that erosion was happening more quickly as time went on. And so, you know, the bottom line there was, hey, listen, our military superiority is, is, is less than what it used to be, and it's getting less faster. On top of that, they would then say, and the key technologies that are going to be necessary for reasserting our military dominance are being developed by private sector actors, such that we cannot write, the US government cannot write a check large enough to unilaterally reassert our dominance. So they were talking about this dependency. And even in the essay, I've got this quote from former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dumford, where he says, quote, our ability to leverage industry here in the United States, our ability to maintain a technological edge over any potential adversary is going to very much depend on the partnership between industry and the Department of Defense, end quote. So that general trend is reflected in that statement, that things have evolved in such a way as to where the U.S. military and the U.S. government more broadly is now dependent on industry to a degree and at a scale that I don't think we've seen before. And part of the dynamic in all of this is that the United States is not the only government that's grappling with this. Obviously, China, other nations as well. And so as the United States is dealing with this, they're dealing with the companies that are, on one hand, looking east to Washington, and they're dealing with their own home government, and then looking across the Pacific Ocean at China and the markets that they hope to, to access and so on. Why don't we walk through the three types of government response that you have in your paper? And I love, I love these three titles. You focus on the US, China, and Europe. So let's begin with the U.S. approach. You call it engage and invest. Yeah, well, because in one sense, we've been here before. We know how to do this. The, the United States government general posture toward industry is to engage them. And by engage, we don't mean coerce. We mean try and cultivate a shared sense of opportunity, a shared sense of responsibility, and a, and a shared sense, when appropriate, of concern and, and, and response. That is typically done through both formal and informal channels. But one of the things that has made this a little more difficult in the past is that in the past, when we talk about key national security technologies, we were thinking about bombs and tanks and guns and planes and things like that. And a lot of that was done by domestic companies that, that frankly understood that they were American companies and didn't have to be convinced that they should prioritize American national security over certain notions of profit. Now, however, the key companies that we have in view of this series of essays are truly globally operating companies. Most of them are American companies, meaning they're headquartered in the United States, but they, they operate globally and they have global interests. And frankly, our engagement with them thus far has been more difficult to help them understand that we do, in fact, have shared interests, that, that they are only able to 
thrive the way they are because they're protected by American law, American ultimately military strength, and American business freedom and practices. So as I say in the essay, you know, the response to that has been uneven. There are some companies who actually get it. They've been very clear about that, even in the face of some scrutiny and frustration of their employees. And there are other companies who I would say have not quite gotten that message and continue to resist. That's the engage part. The invest part is something that the United States has always done, but I think we need to do better and more. And that's where we do our own government-derived and driven research and design. We, of course, have groups like the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency or DARPA. We have groups out of the CIA called NQTEL or the Defense Innovation Unit and all these other groups. But while they do some pretty amazing work, what is not happening at those and other capabilities is we're just not bringing to bear the technologies at the scale and speed that the security environment requires. And so it's this double-edged strategy of engaging with industry and investing in our own that typifies the U.S. response. On the investment side of things, it's been a lot of interesting writing on this, especially in recent years. And I'd really encourage listeners to look at the things that our friend Tony Mills at R Street Institute has been writing about the need for government investment in basic science and research and development. I think he was recently on AEI's Jim Pethokoukas' podcast. And so I'd encourage people to look at that. But let's focus on the engagement side of things. This has been fascinating. You're right that when we're not dealing with government contract companies, we're dealing with just sort of general use companies. There has been this fascinating political struggle when you have these companies on the West Coast who really their employees, forget about the, the executives, for the employees themselves, there's often real resistance at the company working with the federal government in a way that there just isn't the same resistance against them entering, say, the Chinese market. And this was famously a struggle within Google the first time they engaged the Chinese market. And now more recently, where a lot of employees will bristle at working with the US military, but yet Google enters the Chinese market. I think we're, we're, we're taping this in October, right around the time that the, I think it was the CEO of Coinbase, Bitcoin company, got in real political trouble by telling his employees he wanted them to stop being so politically engaged with their work. And the blowback to that was immense. The employees of these companies seem particularly politically engaged. So my question is, how do you create the capacity for engagement on the side of both the government and the companies themselves? I know Ash Carter has tried to do a lot of that, but what's your recommendation? So I, this is where, number one, I spend a lot of my time and, and I'm happy to spend even more because I think civil society groups, so groups like Heritage, groups like AEI, can play a critical role because I don't think it can be overstated just how significant a rupture the illegal revelations by Edward Snowden really were. I think that really was a catastrophic break in the relationship between the US government and the technology industry. I also think that. So these companies hire the best engineering and creative talent in the world, many of whom come through university systems that propagate a worldview and an understanding of, of history that sees the United States as not a great experiment, but as the source of great evil and has, frankly, a very dim view of the United States specifically, and then also a very, what I would call, well-intentioned but naive understanding of human nature and history. And I think all that gets reflected in how they re respond to this. And in some sense, I can sympathize with some of the executives, you know, in the case of Google, for example, when the 4,000 employees signed a letter calling on Google to, to stop participating in, in a program with the Department of Defense. 
what the executives and the board of Google were facing were essentially almost the entirety of some of its top AI engineers and leaders threatening to leave. That's a big deal just from a business standpoint. And so I understand some of the pressures. At the same time, they've created this environment where all of these people are operating under a notion that's just wrong. And so one of the things that we can do, and again, something I spend a lot of time doing is trying to engage with these companies and help them think more clearly about what is really happening. Now, what's happening now is that the great power competition between the US and China is now, it's unmistakable. People are having to deal with that. And they're also understanding they're going to have to choose a side. You know, one of the ways I do this, I have this kind of off the shelf briefing that I call thinking like a national security advisor, where I've gone to Google, I've gone to Facebook, I've gone to, you know, OpenAI and a couple other places. And I've, I've just sat down with some of their leaders and talked with them like, you don't have to agree with me. I'm not evangelizing. I just want you to understand how someone like me in some of the positions that I've been in, how I wake up on, on any given day and the questions I have to answer and why we then engage you, the companies, the way that we do. Frankly, w- without exception, the response to that briefing and similar ones has always been, that was crazy helpful. Thank you. Like We just live in a different world. We don't think this way. And to hear someone kind of come out of that culture and and tell us the things that you care about and, and why you have to care about them and the questions you have to answer is really helpful. Now, you know, I haven't solved world peace, but I think it's going to be initiatives like that that really are necessary. And I do think that civil society is going to play a critical role. You know, it's interesting. We tend to think of national security as a place where secrecy is important. I mean, that goes all the way back to Federalist 70. But what I'm hearing is that to get the buy-in from these increasingly important companies, requires a change in mindset about secrecy. Obviously, we're not saying opening up more and more things that need to be confidential, but it is more of an art of political persuasion that relies upon the sort of the good faith and trust in government leaders to to say it like it is for the government's own sake. Well, yeah. And and again, there there does have to be a little bit of a naivete that has to be kind of pushed back where you you just help them understand that they're over the same barrel we are. You know, these companies can't be who they are if they're operating in China. These companies can't be who they are if they're anywhere else, frankly. And so there just has to be a little bit of a reality check. But you do have to be careful from, you know, coming from the, the, the government side. You have to be careful because it's a hard adjustment for government leaders and national security leaders, particularly, to recognize that they are now a stakeholder in security conversations and not the stakeholder. That's a big adjustment. We're going to get to that theme in in just a moment. I want to stick on the the point about engagement. Just one other point I can't help but bring up before we move on to China. The point that you made about companies seeing themselves as as American companies and seeing themselves as part of this country and asking them to do things that might go against their short-term economic interest for the sake of the long-term sustainability of the country that made these things possible. That sounds a lot like a version of arguments that are made about corporate governance from the left. This year, especially, we've seen so many arguments about what's called ESG, environmental, social, and governance policies, asking governments, or sorry, asking companies to look beyond just the bottom line of profits to shareholders and to focus on other stakeholders. I remember being in a conversation with a conservative legal scholar I, I admire immensely right around the time this issue was bubbling up about a year ago. And he was really bristling at the idea that companies should focus on any values other than shareholder profit maximization. My view was, well, no, actually, we do need the companies to focus on things beyond profits. It's not that companies shouldn't have other values. It's a question of picking the right values. 
right? It's kind of like an education. Should kids be taught values in school where they're going to be? The problem isn't that they're not being taught values, that they're being taught the wrong values. How much of, the, of what you're talking about, how, how close does this come to those debates on ESG? And how do we find a way for government to promote the right values among companies without just walking away from basic principles of corporate governance and shareholder profit maximization? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think it's important that we recognize that a lot of this really depends on what you mean, right? So I agree that there can be, in what I'm saying, there can seemingly be echoes of some of the like ESG conversation. However, I do believe it's it's kind of radically different. So here's how I think about it. There has always been an expectation within the US marketplace that companies would be responsible in a whole host of different ways. And in the context of kind of national security responsibility, historically speaking, there were a lot of unstated but commonly shared presuppositions. If you were an American company, you thought, generally speaking, that you should not pursue business that would harm the national interests of the nation. You thought, generally speaking, that you would not enable a foreign hostile government to exceed the capacity militarily or otherwise of your home nation. That didn't need to be stated. It certainly didn't need to be coerced. And during the Cold War, at least, there was a a common understanding of the existential threat in the Soviet Union, for example, that just operated as a natural mitigating reality for American companies and policy leaders. And everybody just kind of worked within that frame. Well, one thing that's happened, I think, I think this is true, although I think more study is is required of it, is that, you know, when the Cold War ended, much of that shared sense of an existential threat, I think, ebbed away. And the beauties and the fruitfulness of the free market really exploded. And we we started doing business and we built a system around a free market absent any kind of existential threat. And it was great. We brought many, 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 many people out of poverty with better health and all kinds of wonderful human thriving implications of that. Now, however, as we have the reemergence of great power competition, and with that, at least the shadow of existential threats and challenges, those market dynamics are again being kind of checked. And we're feeling that. And I we're trying to find the new equilibrium. One of the friction points of finding that equilibrium is the fact that many of the most consequential companies, the ones that you and I are talking about now, again, operate much more globally. They understand themselves to be more global in nature and the economy itself relative to what it was during the Cold War versus now is far more globalized. And so there's just an intricacy that I think is straining some of the previous notions and people like you and I are trying to figure out the path forward where we we adhere to the principles that you described while also not allowing unacceptable national security and foreign policy outcomes to emerge. Well, that's well put. You just mentioned in passing the companies we're referring to. We haven't actually named a whole lot of companies in the conversation. I mean, when I think about this, I suppose we're thinking about some of the online you know, website platforms, so like Facebook and Google. But we're also talking about the companies that make some of the hard technology and the software that undergirds all of these things, right? I mean, I don't know if you, if you want to give some representative examples, just so the audience can have a sense in more concrete terms of what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a host of groups. It's going to be Apple. It's going to be Microsoft. It's going to be Qualcomm. It's going to be Cisco. Those are just 
honestly, some narrow industries. I mean, when we talk about foreign companies, obviously, we can talk about Huawei and other Chinese telecommunication leaders. We can talk about Alibaba. We can talk about WeChat. We can talk about Tencent, right? So ByteDance, who owns TikTok. These are online technology companies who are absolutely shaping the contours of the international system right now. And notice that they're not all American. And you and I are talking about the American response in the midst of this, but increasingly, I mean, all you have to do is look at the news today to understand that increasingly some of the Chinese variants are growing in their influence and capacity as well, which I guess could go into how China is, is kind of adapting to this environment. Yeah. On the American companies, it's been interesting to see among the ones you mentioned, Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft, really take on a sort of a public facing role as a thought leader on these things. He wrote a fascinating book so last year, the year before, titled Tools and Weapons, The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age. And it's been very interesting to see him really walk through these things on the public stage. And you almost wish more executives would engage the, the public debate more. You mentioned China. So let's move on a little bit more briefly. I didn't mean to belabor the point of the United States, but it is, after all, our country. Let's talk about China next. Your, your framework for China is fuse and use. What does that mean? Essentially, that's a, it's a play on a specific Chinese doctrine called civil military fusion. And the notion is, is that the Chinese government understands its technology industry as an extension of the state and intends and, frankly, effectively blends the two so that they cooperate in furtherance of objectives of the state. So, you know, one of the key examples that is always brought up is Huawei. So Huawei is China's marquee telecommunications firm. It is the world's only company that can unilaterally design, build, deploy, and manage fifth-generation wireless networks, 5G. And it's heavily subsidized by the Chinese government. Number one, the technologies that under, undergird Huawei, many of which were stolen by the Chinese government intel services. So they, they went and they, they got a bunch of the underlying technology and they then gave it to Huawei as their national champion. Huawei itself was incentivizing the theft of intellectual property and other key data. Then the company itself is subsidized by the Chinese government so that its market presence can expand. They can build infrastructure and networks, and then that infrastructure and those networks can be leveraged by the Chinese state as essentially a technical surveillance and, and collection capability globally. So that's the type of cooperative fusion that typifies China's recognition of the dynamics that you've and I've been discussing in terms of the growing role of technology and foreign policy. If the US is trying to non-coercively partner with industry, China is simply forcing the cooperation and prioritizing that cooperation on key objectives. In addition to Huawei, I suppose we're talking about companies like is it WeChat is the big social media platform there that I think is also involved in everything from payments to the social metrics that they use and, and so on. It's interesting that with China, between the eagerness of and willingness and capability of the government to use coercive measures and also just to subsidize, and then you combine that with the sheer size of the market, the domestic market in China for technology services, it's like it's this perfect storm. If China were less authoritarian or less populous, maybe it would be less of a problem. But it's the combination of those two things that really makes it difficult for American technology companies to grapple with. And at the same time, American technology companies, I suppose they see in some ways, maybe this is more in terms of the employees, in some ways they see American government as a bigger threat to them 
because American government is more familiar, is closer, right? The employees at Google get more upset about the American government because it's, it's their government. Whereas the Chinese government, the things that it does are, are an ocean away and they affect other people. And so China has all of these natural advantages when it comes to not just their own companies, but America's companies. How does a, a US tech company grapple with China's political and economic and government power? When we talk about the employees, there's actually quite a bit of it's a curious problem because many of them will and have. So, you know, we, we kind of poked at Google a little bit about their, their dealings with the Department of Defense. But the reality is, is that a bunch of Google employees also protested reports that Google was going to get back in in China doing business. And that so far has actually kind of stymied that effort and, and rolled it back a bit. As China's human rights violations and some of their most the grossest examples of oppression and suppression of religious and political minorities becomes more publicly known. There is a type of, of coherence amongst kind of the, the low-level employees or just the employee base of these companies who you know, decry that and say, we can't be there. But at the executive level, you're right. They see these markets and they quite rightly feel a fiduciary responsibility and see an opportunity, not just in terms of making money, but also talent. I mean, China is a huge place and they have a lot of engineering talent. And so it is a true fact that the United States is not producing sufficient levels of artificial intelligence talent to meet demand. And so when you see a pool of talent like China, it's very attractive. So all that makes sense to me. But there are competing interests and even values that I think up until this point have stymied many of the executives. I think for a long time, there was hope. And this is reflected in American foreign policy too. But there was hope that, look, if we just open up these markets, broader freedoms will follow. That wasn't an irrational strategy. It has, however, proven to be wrong. It's time to recognize reality and, and deal with that. One of the things, you know, we talk about these companies recognizing their growing national security responsibilities in the context of China. It's got to be known that while the Chinese market can be lucrative, it's also a moral minefield and ultimately, I think, a dead end for Western companies. I mean, American companies, when they submit to Beijing's predatory demands on everything from intellectual property to proprietary information and trade secrets and, and the like, they're actually weakening American economic competitiveness. And they're, I think, opening themselves up to real concerns about individual and national cybersecurity. And as we're talking about now, even broader national security interests for the United States. And it's a business risk as well. I mean, so you mentioned Microsoft earlier, you know, former CEO of Microsoft, Steve Ballmer, talked about how 90% of Chinese firms use Microsoft's operating system, but only about 1% actually paid for it. That cost them, I think you said somewhere in the neighborhood of like $10 billion. And so I just think the days of thinking that intellectual property theft and, and other losses like that were just the tax of gaining access to the Chinese market, I think those days are done. And I think that global companies are really starting to reevaluate their posture on China. And maybe getting back to the U.S. and engagement and investment, part of the engagement, I suppose, is the public engagement, the government's engagement with the public on what's happening in China, right? Calling to attention China's human rights abuses, its abuse of its own power in, in other countries. You know, in some ways, things like not just Voice of America and, and then abroad, things like Radio Europe, Radio Free Liberty, but just the United States capacity, but also its credibility, sometimes rebuilding that credibility in public engagement becomes a central issue in technology policy, precisely because of the, of the Chinese effect. Yep, that's exactly right. So let's talk about Europe, your third case study. Europe, you describe as strangle and surrender. And I'm curious, who's doing the strangling and who's doing the surrendering? 
Yeah, that was my most provocative kind of description. No, I think the European governments are strangling their industry. I think that's demonstrable by the lack of, of a truly thriving industry, especially relative to what's present in the United States and in, in China. The European Union, the biggest action they've taken on, on technology policy in the last several years has been the passage of what's called the General Data Protection Regulation. It is this massive, massive hodgepodge of regulatory burdens that they have placed on EU member states and their tech industry that I think can honestly be said not to have demonstrably improved anyone's privacy or security has dramatically impacted these companies' ability to do business in this arena. And frankly, just doesn't work. I mean, just as a key example, Google, one of the largest, most profitable companies in the history of the world, has said publicly that it took them, you know, a hundred man years to come into compliance with GDPR. That's insane. You know, and imagine if you're some startup who, you know, some would-be disruptor and you've got to come into compliance with this mess, just forget it. It's not going to happen. And it's not a coincidence then that the leading technology companies are where they are and where they're not. They're not in the EU. They're not likely to be. Now, one of the curious things behind all this is earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that the natural posture in the United States, kind of the cultural posture is one where we, we don't trust the government, but we largely trust companies. And I think that's reflected in the business. We're happy to give all these companies a great deal of data that we would never, ever provide to the government. Well, in Europe, it seems like it's just the opposite, where there is a broad general trust of governments and a very broad distrust of companies. And I think that things like GDPR and a relatively emaciated tech industry are the outcomes of that posture. And I think it's, it's going to be a persistent problem going forward. You mentioned the compliance burden of GDPR. I feel like I've spent 100 man years just clicking those pop-up boxes on cookies or on my web browser for under, under GDPR. So in your paper, you come to two basic, I wouldn't call them policy reforms because they're a little bit bigger than that. But what you say is that we need to make, we collectively, America needs to make two necessary adjustments. One is, you already alluded to it earlier, is the fact that our government needs to recognize that it is, as you put it, a national security stakeholder, not the national security stakeholder, that it's one of several entities along with these companies and the company's other counterparties and others that are in this conversation. What does that mean in practice? What does it mean for the government to recognize that it is just one of the national security stakeholders in this discussion? And how should it adjust its own approach to these things accordingly? Yeah, fundamentally, it's a change in posture frankly, adopting a posture with, with a little more humility. We have internally, or we are internally recognizing this dependency that you and I have been talking about. People who are dependent like this on another often don't make demands on them, but entreat them. And I think that we are still struggling to reconcile ourselves to some of these realities, to understand that these companies offer not, I don't want to just paint this in the negative sense, but that these companies offer the opportunity to realize a level of security and insight and capacity that we have never experienced before. And that working with them and finding a workable path forward is worth it and should be pursued. Now, that being said, part of that is also these companies understanding that they have these responsibilities and that while they are large and influential and necessary, even. They are not independent of the international system, and they are not independent of the power and authority of states. 
And so if they mismanage this relationship, if they are not appropriately responsive to government engagement and and kind of offers of partnership, well, at some point, the threats and the security challenges mount and they become so sufficiently high that it's no longer friendship and partnership that's going to be offered. It's going to be compulsion. That's not good for anyone. That is a bad outcome, but that is where things naturally go if a more equitable, more cooperative partnership can't be achieved. Right. So whereas the first recommendation, the first adjustment is on the side of government, and I suppose on the, that also includes the American people who are electing that government. Second adjustment is on the side of the American tech companies who need to see themselves acknowledge that they have their own national security responsibilities. Let's just circle back one more time to the, the theme that we alluded to earlier about the relationship between these private companies and their government. You and I both are in general very wary of government regulation. You and I are both in general believers that the reason why our country produced these great companies was in no small part because of our structure of laws, our belief in markets, our belief in capitalism, a government that created this platform for these companies to emerge. And there are other things, of course, too, investment in R&D and so on. But it really is those great American principles are what gave rise to these great American companies. And so the issues that you raise then, they require sort of a difficult conversation about how to vindicate those principles and stay true to them, while at the same time, deal very seriously with these issues where it's going to require some regulation, it's going to require some self-restraint by the company. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on those broader themes that you want to return to. I think there are a lot of variables that go into this that are creating this environment. I do think that the distortions in the global market created by China and its fusion strategy have to be recognized and have to be dealt with. And frankly, if we recognize and deal with them sooner, I think we avoid or we at least have the opportunity to avoid some of the very bad negative outcomes that you're kind of hinting at. Look, I am as free market as free market gets. But in every conversation historically about free market, there is always this national security, you know, except in cases of national security. Well, I think the difficult reality that we're facing now is that that national security exemption that, that has always been present in conversations about free market, that exemption is now expanding in scope. It's, as I mentioned before, it's no longer just a particular type of plane or train or bomb or tank, but it's now the key technologies that are going to shape and win tomorrow's battlefields are general purpose technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, advanced manufacturing, autonomous robots, that kind of thing. I would much prefer a global marketplace free from any government interference that was efficient and that continued to create wealth and opportunity for as many people as possible, human thriving at a true. But the reality, and this is a very conservative view of the world, is that the other guy gets a vote and that there are other trade-offs. And that so long as China chooses to assume this posture of civil military fusion, there are distortions that have to be addressed, and we cannot allow efficiencies to generate unacceptable national security outcomes. And I suppose then the, one of the keys is to define national security correctly in order to ensure that we're focused on things like this and that national security doesn't become cover for just other big government programs, right? When President Truman famously tried to nationalize the steel industry, 
it was arguably, you know, in support of the Korean War effort, but also it's hard not to look at it and say, well, wait a second, this was a big labor dispute that President Truman was intervening in. And so it becomes incumbent upon not just the companies to recognize the national, the real national security issues and be open to, to compromising on them for the sake of national security. It's also incumbent upon the government to really take this seriously and not use it as cover for other policies. Well, and that's the, that's the hard thing is that one, people can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. I think we've seen that in some of the current conversation where policy actions taken against particular Chinese companies, I would support and say, yes, that is in fact motivated by real national security concerns. But then they're argued publicly in a way that I would disassociate myself with that would be frankly interpreted as protectionist or you know some other less rooted motivation. And so that makes things difficult as well. When that gets confused, it hurts us. One last question. Along the way in your essay, you point out that one of the challenges for US policy on this is that our government, like all governments, is often slow. It's bureaucratic and slow. And there's just fundamentally a knowledge gap between those in government and those in the private sector. If you're interested in these issues and you're, you're a smart engineer or you're, you're smart at building a company like this, you're going to be out West doing those things. You're not going to be in Washington, D.C. regulating those things. So do you have any advice on, on ways to reform the process of government and the quality of the knowledge within government? I mean, could you fix government for us? Yeah. I got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of those efforts, not of their need, but of their efficacy. There's been no shortage of programs to attract programming talent and you know, all kinds of other specific skill-based individuals. The challenge is, is that even if you can get them in, government is not sufficiently agile to leverage them so that you keep them. At some intelligence agencies, there's even a euphemism that they call it regrettable losses, where they talk about people who've come in, they've been there long enough to where they're actually becoming valuable. They're, they're actually real. And that's about when you lose them because they can go make three, four, five times as much money in the private sector. The financial side of that, you can't always, the government's just not going to be able to, to address sometimes. But so long as the government is not able to provide a sufficiently cutting edge mission where you actually get to do things that you can't do anywhere else. And at the point where you don't have some type of coherent career progression, you're just not going to get there. And I'm, again, I'm skeptical of the government's ability to do this. It's just another example of kind of how the bureaucracy doesn't perform. And so this is where I get to the point of like, yeah, new types of partnerships are going to be necessary. This isn't just going to be the government coming to industry and say, hey, can we borrow some of your talent for a little while? No, I think the burden is actually going to be shared between government and industry in a way that it has not been previously. As with all of these things, most of the time, I'm a little grateful that our government isn't extremely agile and innovative and ahead of the curve on everything. There'd be downsides to having that kind of government as well. But conversations like this on this subject do remind us of how important it is to have a modern government. There's a new book out recently that my colleague Elaine Allen and I have been talking about by John Micklethwaite of Bloomberg and Adrian Woldridge of The Economist. It's titled The Wake Up Call. The point of the book is that the COVID-19 crisis has really awoken us to the need to rethink government bureaucracy. And frankly, I thought about that a lot while I was reading this essay and preparing for this conversation, thinking about how much your essay teaches us and raises the issues of not just what's happening in tech, but what needs to happen in governance. And so I, I hope this essay is read widely, and I hope it spurs conversation. Klon, you put out an email newsletter 
called Kitchen Sink, S-Y-N-C, which we'll link to in the, the description of this show. But where else can people go to read more of your work? Because they should. Heritage.org. You can just do a simple search of my name and you should pull up a post of my writings. I obviously do op-eds and, and essays like this. And then I'm on Twitter, but that's not my best work. Okay. Well, thanks, Klon, so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. As always, I hope you join for the next episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, however, this is a special episode to mark the release or the beginning of the release of these essays in this series on technology and government. The project as a whole by National Affairs is titled Big Tech, Big Government, The Challenges of Regulating Internet Platforms. In addition to Klon Kitchen's essay, we also have out an essay by Josh Wright and Jan Ribnasek on the market power issues of tech companies. There'll be more essays soon to follow. We'll link also to that project in the show's description. Please keep an eye out for more essays yet to come. Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential. <laughs>